I am Emily Lyons. In 2011, without a high school degree and with no money to my name, I decided to start my own business. Since then, I've built several multi-million dollar companies and I don't plan on stopping. Being a businesswoman, CEO, serial entrepreneur, survivor, and general life enthusiast, I'm endlessly jazzed by the business of life, especially the stories of extraordinary people I've had the privilege to meet along my own improbable journey to success. I don't think it's fair to keep that privilege to myself, and I think you deserve to be utterly lifted and shifted by these people too. All inspiring people are inspired people, so get ready to be inspired. Mackenzie Retcherson had an enviable job as a top pastry chef, but working a very stressful job led to some severe health issues. So when she heard one of her Puerto Rican co-workers worried over not hearing from his family inspired Mackenzie. She quit her job and relocated to Puerto Rico to see how she could help disaster relief efforts. At age 21, she's already a seasoned disaster relief volunteer who's been going on missions to Thailand and the Philippines since she was just seven years old. But that's only part of her story. The health issues I mentioned earlier was an inoperable brain tumor that actually caused her to have a heart attack while at work. Knowing all this, she still headed to Puerto Rico to help, and she was faced with a choice. Start conventional cancer treatments while there, or try something different. Against her skeptical friends, she studied holistic nutrition while in Puerto Rico and started her own nutritional-based healing program combined with high doses of CBD. As of April, she has been in complete remission and still helping full-time in Puerto Rico. She has some phenomenal knowledge on healing the body naturally, working and succeeding in a male-dominated industry, and finding ways to give back to others through your passion. Here she is. Hi, Mackenzie. It's so great to have you on the show today. Hi. It's so great to be on your show. Thank you so much for reaching out. (laughs) You're welcome. So I first came across you... On Forbes, I saw an article last month and it just kind of blew me away. The, I have the headline here. It was, meet the pastry chef turned world central kitchen savory, serving thousands of disaster relief victims in the Caribbean. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I was pretty blown away. So tell me who is Mackenzie and what is this mission that you're on? Well, so I, like the article says, I was a pastry chef and I pretty much made up my life work, my life's work in being a pastry chef. And that's something that I've always been very involved with food and something that's been a huge passion in my life. But when Hurricane Maria hit, I was really inspired by specifically a coworker of mine at the club that I was working at in Portland who hadn't heard from his family in a couple of weeks and didn't know if they were alive. Mm-hmm. And I felt called to utilize culinary skills, be able to go out and and jump in and help. So I heard about World Central Kitchen doing some relief work in Puerto Rico and said, you know what, I'm going to go find them. I'm going to volunteer and I want to be a part of this mission. So I sold everything I owned back in Portland. Wow. Moved to Puerto Rico. (laughs) Yeah. Ended up finding World Central Kitchen, reached out via Twitter actually to the director that was on site at the time and was just sent her a message about, hey, I've heard about your mission. I want to be involved, which it turned into two weeks of volunteering and then being asked to come on full time as one of their contracted chefs um, for the Chefs of Puerto Rico mission. So we were doing anywhere between 10 to 12,000 meals a day. Wow. So you've totally changed your life. I did. I went from being in the fine dining pastry world and being very meticulous and artistic and really making that be my primary focus within the industry to then utilizing the skills that I have and the love that I have for food to 
be more of a component for change and trying to actively help people through the power of food, not just through gluten and sugar. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So why do you think you were so compelled to help this cause? Well, so I grew up as a military brat. So (laughs) I had the privilege of growing up in a family that was very, very adamant about traveling and being deeply immersed in in many different cultures. We lived in Japan and were able to travel to Thailand, the Philippines, but that was something that we made very active within our family of doing disaster relief work. When I was in second grade, I started my own little fundraising mission operation for the tsunami that had hit Thailand. And uh, I believe it was 2004, I ended up raising just over $8,000 from our school, started a whole fundraiser, made a game out of it within the other kids at the elementary school, raised just over $8,000. And then my family flew out to Thailand and were able to hand deliver supplies to a couple orphanages that we had wow. some connections with in Chiang Mai and brought dental supplies. My mom was a dental assistant, so we were able to bring a lot of products over. So it's kind of been throughout my life being involved in disaster relief in some way or the other. So in your position now, are you surrounded by mainly males in the industry? Yeah, I mean, that's typically the case within the culinary world. And currently in my position, I'm a private chef, but I do run things more independently. So I've pulled myself out of that. But even when I was deeply within the restaurant structure, it was mostly men. And even in a pastry world where you would think it would be a little bit more feminine dominant, there's still kind of had those masculine overtones, which is interesting with with the spectrum of where everyone says the the woman's place is in the kitchen. But when you actually get into the industry (laughs) dynamics, it's the men that are running the world. I know when I was younger, yeah, and I'd work in restaurants, it was always men that were chefs. There was one place I worked and and it had a female chef. But other than that, it was all men and angry men for the most part. Oh, yes. There's definitely some tempers in the kitchen. How do you think you succeeded in a male-dominated industry? My father, actually, he was such a big advocate for me my entire life. And I have four brothers. I've always kind of been in a very masculine, heavy environment, specifically also being a military brat. So it's something that has never really made me afraid of standing up in the face of adversity or in somewhere where I am one of the only women in my house or even being around such a heavy environment, but more my dad always really encouraging me to be strong, be the confident woman that you are and never be afraid to just get out there and accomplish what you want to do because you're able to do anything. So it was always just kind of having that mindset of it doesn't matter where I am. It doesn't matter who is in front of me. It is just about going out and doing exactly what you're passionate about and, and not believing or giving into the world that is around. But definitely, I mean, there's definitely other, you know, you get into the more physical aspects of being in a male-dominated kitchen that can come into play. But then it's just in every instance, every crude joke, every suggestion that's made, (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. being able to look past it and being able to not let it get to you and be able to just focus on your work and stay passionate. So your father, he was the chef as well for the military? No, he was a helicopter pilot for the military, but we were a very food-dominated family. My grandmother actually was a pastry chef, so the second I could hold a knife in my hand as a kid, she stuck it in, she <laughs> stuck it in my hand and started teaching me some knife skills. So I learned how to bake at a very young age, and both my parents are incredible cooks. So we've always been very food-centric household. Your love for food started early. It did, and it actually started a lot with my father and I sitting and reading Anthony Bourdain's books together 
and watching all of his shows. And we would just sit and, and listen about travel and food. And it was just a huge inspiration, especially having lived in Japan. And we were able to experience a lot of diverse culinary experiences when we were over there. My parents were always just very encouraging of, of my brothers and I to always be eating as much as we can and tasting foods that we wouldn't normally want to be eating like in a standard restaurant. So we're very adventurous eaters in, in all of our travels. So it's just been something I've always wanted to learn more and eat as much as I can and experience as much as I can food-wise. So now that you, you've you moved to Puerto Rico, where do you see this going in the future? Yes, I've been in Puerto Rico now for two years. I did a little bit more fine dining pastry work after the World Central Kitchen project in Puerto Rico ended. And then I had been working as a private chef here, went out on a second deployment with World Central Kitchen to the Bahamas where I was leading the kitchen out there. And then now that I'm back trying to shift my focus and finding ways that I can still move forward in doing humanitarian work and trying to bridge the gap with other ways that we can help in disaster relief and trying to also find ways to work with veterans and seeing how we can incorporate some veteran outreach as well as working with food safety and within Mm -hmm. keeping ourselves as an island in the event of another natural disaster here in Puerto Rico, trying to find ways that we can create teams, whether that be working towards agricultural sustainability or working on ways that we can work as a community that we can stay safe in the midst of another natural disaster. What's really interesting to me is how you've immersed your passion with your career, with giving back. If we could all find a way to do that, imagine how great the world would be. (laughs) Yeah. And that's something that I've I've always made a key factor in my life is trying not to do anything without that passion and trying to apply Mm -hmm. that passion in as many ways as I can, not just for myself and my own desires, but just in ways that I can help people. And that was a lot of my transition in leaving the pastry world and kind of having to take a step back for myself and, hey, is this goal and is this me wanting to be a fine dining pastry chef with my menus and having that spotlight, is that for me or is that actually something that is going to make a difference? So that was a huge transition in my life of being able to just take a step back and say, hey, you're still being passionate. You're still applying your love for food and life and doing something to try mm-hmm. to help out for the future. I have a few companies, but I have a charitable company that I started two years ago now called Jewels. And 100% of the proceeds are donated. So my sister's name was Julia. Her nickname was Jules. And she passed away in 2011 from cystic fibrosis. I wanted to create something that could continue doing good in the world in her name. So all the different aspects of the company is designed around her personality. So it's a watch line and accessories. And so like one of the watches is called Kishavji. And that was one of the surgeons that did a lung transplant on her. She'd had wow, two lung beautiful. And then all the proceeds go back to sponsoring different families with CF that are undergoing surgeries or severe health problems that really need the financial help or other ways that we might be able to serve them. I've found that those type of businesses are just so rewarding. And those are the type of things that will be, you know, a legacy in the long run. Oh, absolutely. And it's ways that we can inspire others in in trying to find that silver lining in the dark cloud by Mm -hmm. being able to just be bright and shine and spread as much love and positivity wherever we can amidst the crisis. So where do your family live now? My family are in California. So do you yeah. make, make it home often? I do. I make it home when I can. But being that we're a constantly traveling family, my parents and I always joke about, oh, we'll, we'll see you whenever we see you when you come back <laughs> from your next travels. Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely try to make it home as often as I can. And they come to Puerto Rico 
but we have a great understanding within the family that travels in life, life moves on and we'll see each Mm -hmm. other when we can. Well, they must be pretty proud of what you're doing. Yeah, they do. They are so wonderful and they're so supportive of all of my crazy antics. It's definitely been a wild (laughs) ride, but yeah, I do believe they're proud um, and I work very hard to try to make them proud because they did set a really wonderful example for me in my life growing up, but I definitely would not be where I am without their influence. How did the media find out about you? It was some people that I guess knew of me through circles. The reporter had reached out to me actually right before I had went to the Bahamas and said, hey, I had heard about you briefly and I would love to write a story. So where I had postponed it till after my deployment out in the Bahamas. I'm not exactly sure other than I guess (laughs) (laughs) through the grapevine, but it was really wonderful to be able to tell my story. And to be able to start getting that out, um, especially in a format such as Forbes. Maybe next uh, documentary, movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually, yeah, I've had a couple of people that have suggested the same thing. And uh-huh. I'm working on ri- doing a little writing, actually, and then documenting some stories. But yeah, I definitely would even want to push forward in doing some filming, almost like what Anthony Bourdain was doing and trying mm-hmm. to bring that light into the world and going out and filming and being and talking with people and hearing about the struggles that are going on within the world and then still tying that within the culture. I bet um, you've heard some pretty crazy stories. I have. And it's been really incredible the people I've met on this journey and some people that have stayed in my life and that will stay in my life forever based on of just all of our experiences, the things that we went through. You're probably working with people who have lost everything. Oh, absolutely. It's been challenging and even just having the heart and and sitting there and being able to hold space with those individuals that have lost everything and being able to be a support system and relief for them so that they can feel safe Mm -hmm. and comforted um, and know that they have hope and that there is hope moving forward. There was specifically a woman in Puerto Rico that I had met that in the very early stages of the hurricane, her and her family had posted a help sign on top of their house and they were standing Mm -hmm. on their roof asking for help and uh, a member of the local government came in and asked them to take the help sign down, uh, but did not provide any relief to their family and just asked them to take the sign down and that was it. And they ended up going without water or electricity for another six months after that. Oh my gosh. How did they survive? The community banding together and taking care of each other. It was absolutely incredible. So that was one community in Barranquitas that we went to and posted up and serving food in the heart. You've stayed in touch with them now? Yeah, I've been able to stay in touch with the families and it's been very moving to see how they're doing and how they've been able to recover now. And even having been in Puerto Rico since the hurricane, seeing as the whole island has, is now really coming back together. It's been incredible. I would love to find a way to share some tips of how anybody can start incorporating methods to give back in what their current profession or passions or side hustles. What would you say are some good tips to get started? Well, don't be afraid is my number one thing. And the biggest thing I'd say to my friends is always taste life outside of your comfort zone. So mm-hmm. the first thing that it's finding what you like and what you enjoy and what your soul wants to feast on and really just allow yourself to expand that in as many creative ways as you can and thinking outside of the box and finding ways that maybe these small parts of your passion can be influential, even in the smallest ways, but just find those little bits that you can take that small step outside of the box and be able to help out, whether that's going out in your community or if it's, you know, starting, if you're like an athlete and you want to start a charity fun run or something, but finding little points that are part of your passions and being able to apply that 
in a broader scale. Do you get lonely there? <laughs> yes and no. It's definitely uh, traveling and being as active as I am can on occasion get lonely, but I do have a really wonderful group of friends and a very tight-knit community, and that's something that the culinary industry does really well, establishing these deep bonds and these, these familial relationships with their coworkers, my colleagues, that is indescribable. And I really have a solid foundation and a really solid support system here that on all my travels and all my adventures, they always have my back everywhere I go. And I can go months and be on a trip and not talk to some of my friends and come back and we'll act as if not a day has gone by since we've seen each other. That always makes it a lot easier being so far from home and probably one of the reasons why I've continued to stay there, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've been able to really establish a strong family and community here in Puerto Rico that have been very supportive and even coming back from the Bahamas where just jump right back in and being with my family here. Another thing that really struck me as I got more into your story was that not only have you dedicated your life to giving back, but that you've done it while you had your own health problems. Yes, I did. I mean, that was another big issue of me needing to leave the restaurant scene in general and going into the private sector. But I had been battling a brain tumor. It was wow. a pituitary adenoma. And it was five years of seeing doctors and none of my doctors could find the tumor, getting poked and prodded. First knew it was going to be cancer with various tests that I had, but they couldn't find where. So they had checked for breast cancer, for ovarian cancer, and was a few years of poking and prodding. And this is while I was in culinary school as well. And test after test, very some rather painful, but could never really get answers until actually when I came to Puerto Rico and finally found the doctor that did the right scan and was able to find my tumor. But it was five years of being in the kitchen and where this tumor had actually pushed on my eyes. So I was losing my vision. I was losing the nerves in my hands and my arms. I would get faint and dizzy in a very high active environment and still try to keep pushing every day to get the work done and still trying to be an active force in a very high pressure environment. And my health ended up getting a little too complicated. I had a heart attack what? in one of the kitchens that I worked in. Yes. <laughs> so that was kind of my wake up call for my body of hey, you need to take a step back and you need to focus on yourself and you need to really focus on your own health and not career endeavors all the time. So I left my job and I ended up going and living in the middle of the jungle in Puerto Rico on solar power and rainwater and was pretty much eating mangoes and passion fruit while also studying to be a holistic nutritionist, which I ended up getting certified while I was living in the jungle because I wanted to give myself the tools to be able to heal myself and I have actually now been in remission for the last six months. Did you have to undergo chemo as well? No, actually, I refused to go through chemo based on I had family members that had battled cancer and unfortunately did not make it through. But that was something that I never wanted to go through chemotherapy. So I, first I did some intravenous vitamin C treatments, doing about 100,000 milligrams two to three days a week. And then I did also solely cannabis treatment and doing really heavy CBD treatment RSOs. And that was some of the first medication that actually brought any relief and was able to alleviate my headaches, was able to alleviate the nerve pain. And then pushing forward, now I'm tumor-free. How much CBD would you take? It would really depend on the day. I would do a standard dose of the RSO when it would get really bad, like in the, in the beginning stages. Mm -hmm. And then depending on how I was feeling, have my 1500 milligram bottle of CBD oil that I would add, just drop it under the tongue, or I had a vaporizer 
that depending on how bad the headaches got or feeling the nerve endings or whenever I would see my vision go in and out. I mean, just take as much as needed. That's kind of the big thing with cannabis treatment is it's not going to be the same for everybody and our bodies all will receive the medicine in different ways. But a lot of it for me was just teaching myself how to listen to my body and exactly what my body was telling me that I needed to do to heal myself. So that's been also being now a nutritionist on top of the other culinary work that I do, where I teach my clients how to just listen to your body and and know what cues your body is giving to you as far as how much or how little you need to be consuming something or what diet plan you should follow or or medications or et cetera. So did you take any medications from the doctors to treat it? No, no synthetic medication. And that's been a big part of my journey period has been completely removing myself from all painkillers, all all synthetics and going as natural as possible. Weren't you terrified? I was, (laughs) but at the same time, I had a feeling in my core that I could do this and that my body, along with all of our bodies, like our bodies are made to be able to fight on their own. So I want to give it the best opportunity that it can have and give myself the best fighting chance for my body to do what it's naturally made to do. What did your parents think of that when you said, I have a brain tumor and I'm not going to take medicine? They were, yeah, they were supportive. I mean, my mom actually was diagnosed with a thyroid tumor when she was pregnant with me. This is something that they're not unfamiliar with. So for me, making that statement, it was, they know how, how strong-headed I am about, <laughs> about the way I live my life and how I do things. And, and they trusted that what I was doing and the ways that I was going about it that I was going to be okay and I was seeing my regular doctors. They were definitely worried, but still supportive and trusting while also telling me if it gets worse or if it gets past this point, then you better go see the doctor and go take the synthetics. So there was a point that you sort of had in your mind, like if it gets to this point, then I will. Yeah. And I was kind of already at that point when I had left the restaurant industry where it was getting that bad to where my first instinct was, okay, do I just go on the synthetics now? Do I just go get treatment? Or am I going to fight for this? And that was my decision to go move off grid and to get my body and my life to as completely primal as possible and getting myself as bare bones as you can and kind of playing on that aspect and going in the extreme that way rather than in with the synthetics to give myself a fighting chance first before resulting in the other. So completely detoxing, completely doing like water fasting, mango diets, as well as various vegetarian diets. How long would you just drink water for? I would do anywhere between five days to a week, or I would intermix some fruit every now and then with their, throw in a mango or or two, but trying to keep it as much water only as possible. Or then when my body would tell me, hey, you need to eat, I would find the foods that would specifically help fight and help keep my body and my immune system boosted. What kind of foods would that be? A lot of like cruciferous vegetables, like really dark green, healthy, broccoli, and specifically, kale. I mean, mangoes, yeah, broccoli, kale. I mean, where I was living on a property in the jungle, so I was able to grow some of my own food and growing my own herbs and things. The diet was mainly raw. Yes, mainly raw. Would cook some broths and things, make some bone broth, and try to get some nutrient dense things in that way. But yeah, trying to stay as raw as possible. And how long were you on this diet for? about four months. And did you eat any meat during it? I did. Yeah. So I, I never like to hold myself back and people ask me like, oh, are you vegetarian or this, mm-hmm. that, and the other? And I always say that I go through phases of my body will want to be a vegetarian at one point and sometimes it won't. So 
there'd be times where I would really be craving some red meat, some steak or pork. And then I would allow my body to have that. Because something that at least I follow in my practice is that when your body is craving something that heavily, that is your body telling you that it needs a specific nutrient and that it's calling out for that item. You mentioned mangoes quite a bit. What is the reason behind that? There's a lot of micronutrients within mangoes and even where my body reacted to them very well. There are components in mangoes that there are studies that are showing that they do fight against cancer cells and they help build the immune system. And there's a lot of very powerful like vitamin C and there's a lot of vitamin D in there as well. And I was living in a mango grove. So we had about 10 different mango varietals on the property that we could pick from every day. So it was really just playing with what the land had to offer. Fresh passion fruit as well. They were growing on the property. So those were the two biggest things that I was really eating was just trying to have purely what was in front of me. Was there a reason behind the passion fruit or just because it was there? Yeah, because it was there. It was growing Mm -hmm. naturally. So I just wanted to eat what was on the land. Originally, when you said that the doctors knew you had cancer, but they didn't know what type, how could they tell that you had cancer? Through blood tests and through being able to, where they could see my body was reacting to certain things. They were just trying to locate specifically where the tumor was, but they didn't know where. And they refused to actually do a brain scan Every doctor that I had seen, they had wanted to test for about five other things before they would even think about doing a brain scan, mostly because of my age. And that was the biggest excuse for, oh, we're not going to get you a head CT because we don't want to interfere with any brain development. So it was, we're going to give you this test, this test, and this test, and everything coming out inconclusive. But it wasn't until I got to Puerto Rico and the first doctor I saw here, he was shocked that I had never gotten a brain CT. He said, look, you have all the signifiers for this tumor, which I had internally already assumed that that was the brain tumor anyways. And that's what I had based off of all of these tests and that having been the one thing that I was never tested for. So that was the first thing he did was send me to get a head CT and they immediately found it. How old were you at the time? (laughs) I was 15 when it all first started acting up. And then it was about eight, nine months ago when I really actually started seeing some positive improvements. So I guess yeah, now 21. So you moved to the jungle at how old? I was 20. Okay, so you were, I moved you were to the jungle. jungle. You weren't 15 moving there. No, no, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no. When I was 15, I was going to, I'd actually graduated high school early and I was working in the industry at that point. But no, this was within the last year since being in Puerto Rico that I lived in the jungle. And as it was going on, was it getting worse or was it, Like, is there a degree of brain tumors? There are. Luckily, the tumor that I had was a slow-growing tumor. I mean, the location it was specifically in, my doctors told me it was inoperable, being that just the complications that could come from trying to remove the tumor from right behind my eyes. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't an aggressive tumor, so something that made it a little easier to combat. It's so mind-blowing how different people react so drastically to different things. And it just makes you wonder, because we've all lost people that we love to cancer. And it's like, if they had tried this, would it have turned out differently? And it's just so hard to say, or would they have suffered? Or would they have suffered less? Or Absolutely. And I'm not even advocating for the route that I went being the route to go. And that's definitely not for everybody, but it definitely worked for me within the type of tumor that I had. And I saw progress almost immediately. And specifically after removing myself from a very high stress super pressure focused working environment and living environment to just 
bare bones and truly resting and providing myself that space to heal, which is not for everybody, especially in how drastic of a way that I went to it. But that's kind of how I operate my life going from one extreme to the other. (laughs) What led to the heart attack? Was that a result from the brain tumor? It was, yeah. It was actually so. It was a vi- how I got the brain tumor in the first place. They found out there was a, a virus that I had gotten. I think it was from one of my travels. Is what started it all. So the virus what? is what caused the tumor, which then it also had went into my heart. So having been in a very high stress environment with a brain tumor that also feeds on stress, and then also having a virus that feeds on stress, it put so much strain on my heart. That I ended up giving out. And it was mild enough that I was able to recover. But that was my biggest wake up call of you need to take a step back and provide yourself the space to heal. What kind of virus was it? Um, it was called EBV. And it's actually a very common virus. 90% of people in the United States have this virus, but only 10% of people that have the virus actually see any complications from it. But being that I was in such a high stress environment mm-hmm. and pushing my body and not. <laughs> not giving my body what it needed to in order to thrive at that point. It fed the virus to be able to take over. That's scary. Did you have yeah, to do, take was. antibiotics to get rid of it? No, you can't get rid of the virus once you have it. You can make lifestyle changes so you don't see the virus ever, ever pop up. So it's been a lot of just reducing my stress. You can never get rid of it. No. So I, I'll have this virus for the rest of my life. And that's where I am now just more conscious about how much strain I am putting myself and being more active about self-care as a whole. So do you continue taking the CBD? I do. Yeah, pretty regularly. Try to incorporate it where I can. Put a little bit of CBD oil in my coffee in the morning. But since my symptoms have all pretty much all but gone away, I have not needed it nearly as much and just, you know, only on special occasions when, mm-hmm. <laughs> when I need a little extra pain relief. But yeah. And it really helps with the pain. Absolutely. And I mean, it doesn't necessarily work for everybody, but for me, since I haven't been on any synthetic medications for quite some time, now my body actually has been more receptive of being able to go the natural route. Have you tried any other natural things like psychedelics, like psilocybin or? Yeah, I actually, I have worked with psilocybin. I've worked with ayahuasca as well and using that for therapy within myself and with also holding space for other people for post-traumatic stress relief. And that's something that even doing disaster relief work where I've come across even some of the former military people that I've met in my life, as well as chefs and, and people within the industry, where we've worked together on that and using psilocybin and other plant-based medicines for other deeper parts of healing. So when you say worked with it, did you microdose it or how did you... What did you do with it? I've done microdosing and the full dosing as well as holding space for both people What's that are working space? in microdosing. Sitting and, and being there as a comforting source for people that are going through psychedelics hmm. and being able to sit with them. So if there's something that, if, if they're having issues in dealing with the medication or coping with it, or there's stuff that comes to light within the mind, being able to provide a comforting zone for them within the medicine. It scares me being trapped in a terrible experience. I always tell people, don't be afraid to be trapped in a terrible experience, but rather allow yourself to release anything that might be trapped within your brain just wanting to get out and allow yourself to just let it pass. And it keeps telling yourself, this is a small phase, this too shall pass. With every deep negative thought that could come out and saying, yes, I release you, this too shall pass. How many times have you done it? You know, probably a handful of times. 
at this mm-hmm. point myself. Same with holding space as well. But I do rather enjoy it. I try not to access it recreationally and trying to keep that more. I mean, I was doing a lot of that practice when I was living in the jungle more so than I am now. Yes. Being able to bring my friends out to the property and sit with them and, and be in a space such as that. So where you're completely alone, completely away from any other influences. And how did you feel afterwards? How's your mood afterwards? I've always felt and having peace come through after the fact of having found where I can feel the ways that the brain or my brain specifically ends up almost feeling reconnected and being able to have released anything that was trapped within my mind and stuff that sometimes are things that I don't even want to admit to myself that ends up coming out that you have that in the deep internal personal clarity that you can sit through the next day and be like, look, I was honest with me. I was honest within my heart. I was honest within my mind to myself so I can push forward. With the microdosing, you don't feel anything. Everybody is different. So my body is a little bit more sensitive to those things just because I have opened myself up to receiving plant-based medicine. But some people don't experience a whole lot within microdosing, maybe feel a little warm and fuzzy. Sometimes they might see a little bit of the light changing, but it's a real heart opener and it really kind of just warms up areas within your heart and your mind, but everybody reacts differently. And how did you feel when you microdosed? I felt a sense of calm and joy. And that's part of the fun of being able to work with some psychedelics in Puerto Rico is having a lot of nature. And that's where I always encourage the people that I have worked with this on is being within nature as much as possible when you're working with the medicine. So being able to go have a little microdosing in the mushroom and then going and swimming with the reef and being meditative and free diving. So that's part, that's a hobby of mine is going free diving. So being able to microdose and then be in a deep meditative place within the reef and doing like breath training and breath exercises within that. So it kind of brings it all together. Free diving is where you walk me through that. Yeah. So free diving is essentially snorkeling, but taking it up to the next level where you're, you're training your lungs and your heart to get down your heart rate specifically to get down as low as you can so you can hold your breath as long as you can to be able to dive under. So rather than scuba diving where you're attached to a tank, free diving, you're solely using your lung strength. Mm-hmm. How long underwater. do you stay underwater without a breath? When I'm actively training a couple minutes, I can be underwater. And then that's when you're also kicking and moving around and being active under. So yeah, about two, two and a half minutes, but slowly building. I mean, right now my training is not quite where I want it to be. (laughs) Oh, that would burn. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You go do a couple minute dive, go down there and then you get back up to the surface and then you just meditate. You allow your heart rate to come back down and then you dive down again and do that as long as you can. Where can people find more information about you? Well, I am working on building my blog. (laughs) But yeah, I try to post on Instagram. If anyone wants to check me out at The Starving Traveler on Instagram, as well as Twitter and Facebook. I try to post a lot about my adventures and culinary experiences, as well as stuff that's going on in my life. And then hopefully soon going to be getting a book out about travels and experiences. Oh, that would be so good. Put me down for a copy. <laughs> I absolutely will. <laughs> well, thank you so much for chatting with me today and sharing a bit of your story. Thank you so much as well. It was really wonderful chatting with you. 